This is Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast with John Bacon. This is the place where people from all walks of life share their anxiety stories to remind you that you are not alone. If you have an anxiety story you'd like to share, contact us at anxietycanada.com slash ouranxietystories. Hi, I'm John Bateman. You're listening to Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast, which can be found at anxietycanada.com and all your popular podcast platforms. Mary Walsh is a Newfoundland actor, writer, and comedian. Among her many awards and doctorates, Mary is also the recipient of the Order of Canada and the Governor General's Lifetime Achievement Award in the Performing Arts. Mary is an outspoken advocate for mental health and addiction awareness. Welcome, Mary. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm a little bit anxious. Yeah, okay. That happens. I am, if it's any consolation, I am too. So we can just, (laughs) we'll we'll talk each other through this. Okay. the, the, the podcast is Our Anxiety Stories. So, Mary, let's kick it off by asking, what's your anxiety story? Well, you know, I, um, I was an active alcoholic for 25 years and, mm-hmm. of course, continue to be an alcoholic because you never, you know, but I'm in recovery. Right. And for the last 29, actually, um, as of October the 31st. So I've often thought, as many of us do when we're young, you know, you're very anxious and very uncomfortable and and you have a few drinks and then that takes it. But, you know, I've been reading lately that addiction is a primary disease. It's not a disease that's caused by something else. Mm -hmm. It can be, you know, just like heart disease, you're you're born with a predilection for it. If you live a bad lifestyle, heart disease wise, you know, you're going to get it harder. And I think that addiction is like that too. So I can't blame my, uh, my addiction on anxiety because I'm kind of buying into that addiction is a primary disease. It is its own disease. And I feel like long before I took my first drink, I had those things that they say that alcoholics and addicts have a feeling mm-hmm. of being on the outside, mm-hmm. uh, that the rest of the world was having a great time and that uh, you're like out on some promontory, some dark, windy place and everyone else is having a cozy Christmas. And all those feelings of uh, no low self-esteem and um, uh, fear, r- raging, raging, nameless fear, fear of everything. And of course, I didn't really know anything about that until I stopped drinking and I started in recovery. And I'm really learning very slowly. Uh, but I did realize at some point in my recovery that I had been afraid of everything, people, right. places and things, you know. So mm-hmm. but I, you know, covered that up like people go oh, like same, you know, my friend, you know, Andy Jones says, you know, come on, Mary, you you don't, you know, you're not afraid. And I go like a rat in a corner attacking you uh, is the same as a mouse running away from you. Both are caused by anxiety and fear. One is an, is offensive and one is, you know, defensive, but it's, you're still operating out of fear, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so did you, did you, like, I, I find that what you're describing is what I've experienced with anxiety uh, and depression as well, is that, is that kind of sense of fear of everything. And so that's what, it, did, was it a kind of a slow progress for you from like, did, did you, was there a point where you realized that alcohol was, did it for you and, and that you had to 
pull the plug or you actually you because it sounded like you continued on for quite a while with uh, oh with yeah drinking. i went on bravely drinking for 25 years yeah. uh though though the first time i ever got drunk and and people say that you shouldn't you know say this and uh, it always uh you know even in uh, meetings people are often go, go but you know the very first time i ever got drunk i passed out and i was only 15 at the bar and i went home and i peed in the bed and my cousin from New York, from Brooklyn, New York, was visiting and she had to sleep in the same bed. And I came to in the morning and she wasn't there. And I rushed downstairs and I put the sheets in the in the washer mm -hmm. only to an hour later for Mary, my cousin, Mary. We're all called Mary in my family <laughs> right, um, yeah. the, uh, to come down over the stairs and go, Aunt Mary. Oh, my God. I got in the bed last night. I thought I was going to float away. It was piss from good. And, and oh, my God. And the humiliation was so great. Like I really she knew how to do the Watusi. She yeah. was already wearing bell bottoms when we were wearing straightly. You know, she was like yeah. right at the cutting edge. Yeah. Um, Plus, I think she. I'm, no, I'm not going to say that. Uh, because, uh, but um, uh, so the humiliation was great, and so and and I had blacked out that very first time. I had blacked out. I didn't have any memory of it. And sometimes you you hear people say after 30 years they started to black out, and then they became very concerned, and then they thought I should stop drinking. This is frightening, right? Mm -hmm. No. That was the beginning for me. Mm -hmm. And I, like I said, I bravely went on, not always peeing in the bed, thank God. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but definitely continuing to have blackouts, you know. And as my drinking carried on, I more and more wanted to drink with only one thing in mind, not fun or laughs or anything like that, just to be out of it, to escape. And then I remember I went to a, a um, counselor when I first... Uh, when I first was getting sober, I was only been sober a couple of days. How long ago, how long ago was this that you first went to? A 29 counselor? years ago. Oh yeah. Okay, and um, the, um, the counselor said, you know, you could just leave. And you know, I hadn't even thought that, that I could just leave. He said, you know, cause we were doing a book launch at the time, a Codco book launch and we were on the road and I went, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know, tonight when the, the party's on and everybody and he, and you know, and usually I would leave, but I would leave by blacking out but I thought, oh, I could just leave. I could just leave. Like I could just, yeah. No, you could just leave. Anyway, so that was, uh, that was great. But it's been a long, long journey. And I'm still, you know, I guess anxiety is so common these days, isn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if anybody, when I was in grade nine, which would have been, you know, back before the earth hardened, yeah. if anybody talked about anxiety at all, or if anxiety was given any kind of, you know. Name. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, 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 you know, like uh, people just didn't uh, cop to it. Really. Well, I, it's interesting because I, you know, in, in my experience and doing my, the research through the gene, my genealogy, like, you know, kind of searching who else had anxiety in my family and really nobody's really copped to it um, still, especially the older generation. Um, but, you know, I, I had an uncle who he missed, you know, talking about the language of mental health. He he missed an entire year of school uh, because he had a case of the nerves is what they called it. Yeah. And uh, that is anxiety. Um, 
since then we've yeah of course we've the, the language has become much more clear and people have a better understanding of it uh where did you where did Wait. go ahead yeah no, I was going to say that we I have a long history on both sides of my family of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of, you know, like I remember seeing a counselor years ago, years before I got sober. And I said, you know, I grew up with my two maiden aunts and an uncle I next door to my family for some bizarre reason. <laughs> and uh, um, I said, you know, Aunt Fien used to always say that I was an alarmist. And he said, well, you had a lot to be alarmed about. And I know my sister, when she was 16, my oldest sister, she she physically kind of blew up in uh, and and the doctor, the, the family doctor came and said, she's nuts. You know, you, she's got to go to the Waterford, which was the mental at the time. Right. And so there was a lot of anxiety. But, you know, you got to figure, boy, there was in an alcoholic home, which I actually I only grew up next door to. Mm -hmm. There was a lot to be very anxious about. So God alone knows what was going on with Madonna again, Madonna and the Mary. And I think even my oldest brother, Kevin his he chose Mary in, uh, in confirmation as his con cause he had a devotion to the blessed Virgin. So yeah, it's really? all Mary's, but, um, but I'm sorry, what were you going to ask me? Um, I think I, I, what, what I was going to ask or what I was curious about is um, what, you know, you, you've been in, you've been performing for a long time. You've been in the performance. I, I take it that started. When, when did you start? or realize this is what you wanted to do? Well, I didn't really. I really wanted to be a journalist, but I didn't do any, you know, like there was at a certain point when I started to drink, which would have been about grade eight or grade nine, mm -hmm. I kind of went steadily downhill from being like in the top five of marks in, you know, those early years, not that it makes any difference, but I went to where I was just failing everything, you know? So when I got out of high school, I didn't really have the marks to get into say Carlton to journalism, but that's really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's why this hour is 22 minutes was such a great fit for me. Cause even though I wasn't a journalist, I could pretend to be a journalist on TV. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. Of course. Uh, but um, the, um, um, so I, I, fell into uh, acting. And then I found that when we did, I found that people here, when we came home from Toronto as Codco, people mm -hmm. here either really loved us or really hated us. We never saw the people who really hated us anyway. They were Good. the mostly upper middle-class people who thought we shouldn't make fun of the church. And Father Hickey, of course, of course who of denounced course. us from the from the steps of the Basilica. And Father Hickey, of course, died in prison. Uh, but um, uh, that was our proud. Why do moment. I laugh at that? I should. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But our proudest moment was being denounced by Father Hickey. Then you've really made it. You've, you've really gone but, um, somewhere. Yeah. I felt. I remember being in the bathroom, in a uh, at a party, and hearing people outside the door talking about Codco in the most glowing terms. And I remember thinking, I'm part of that. I'm part of that. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being like feeling maybe for the first time, you know, because I did grow up next door to my family mm -hmm. for the first time, but I never really felt a part of anything my whole life. I've only now in these last 29 years, have I ever, even when I was on the day, you know, this hour's 22 minutes was my idea. And even mm -hmm. on the desk with the first four, I used to feel that Kathy and Rick and Greg were all close and that I was outside. Interesting. And it was all, you know, it's all, 
an internal job, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's- we yeah we definitely um, we definitely create a lot of different scenarios and dynamics in our head that aren't real. That's the, right. the human brain. I mean, for better, or for worse, that's what the human brain does. It, it creates yeah. causes a lot of creativity, but then it can also cause a lot of isolation. And I think for those who are creative, get, being isolated is is quite common. Yes. Being isolated. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And and really wanting to be in. <laughs> yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Who knows? So yeah. did you, did, in terms of performing, because what you describe and what you do, and of course I've, you know, I grew up in Nova Scotia. So Codco was huge. This hour, 20 minute is still huge. Um, and uh, what you do, uh, and even what I do, you know, talking to people on a podcast or being on stage when I do, you know, hosting stuff. Um, it's a nightmare for them. That's the, that's the epitome of anxiety how come you feel like you can do it? You know, if you have this one side of you that kind of where you're, you feel isolated, you feel, how do you do, how does it feel doing the stage? How do you do that? A lot of help Mm -hmm. when, you know, I, here's the thing. I was really depressed when I was 18. I was going to marry this in America. I went down to Colorado. It all went terribly wrong. I came home in defeat. Another great failure in my constant failures. Mm -hmm. And I was lying on the couch at my Aunt May's and I was watching Coronation Street. And I was so depressed that, you know, my Aunt May, who never believed in, you know, uh, psychiatry or that sort of thing, came in and said, would you like me to call Dr. O'Brien? He was the only psychiatrist in St. John's. You know, are you okay? And I saw this ad for a summer replacement on CBC radio uh, for this thing called Summer Magazine. And CBC was just across the street. CBC radio was just across the street from where we lived. And for some reason or other, you know, makes no sense. I went over and did an audition. And I so believed particularly that I was never going to get it, that I got the job. I got the job. Then that was my finest moment. And then, of course, I got on there and... uh, and, you know, the only mail we ever got that whole summer was somebody who wrote in and said, who is the mad giggler on from 10 to 11 every morning? <laughs> it was like, so anyway, another big failure. But while I was on there, someone from the amateur theater called me to be in a show. And I I really did a bad job in the show because it was the queen is in the count. The queen is in the, you know, the king is in the counting house. Counting was, was based on that thing and Dudley Cox wrote it and uh, mm-hmm. the queen was supposed to be sort of sexual or something and I just couldn't just couldn't bring myself to kind of do anything like that and I remember Dudley was constantly working with me but he must have seen something I guess because then when we did the first tour mm-hmm. uh, it would be the first semi-professional tour I think we got paid $35 a week or something. And I did it with Andy Jones and, and uh, Kathy wasn't on that first one, but she was on the second one and Greg Malone and, you know, Tommy mm-hmm. Sexton and all that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I did that and I, I wasn't very good. Uh, and I was really embarrassed. And particularly when we wrote Cod on a Stick, which was the first Codco show, mm. I almost couldn't face out to the audience. And Andy had been in England and he came, we were doing a tour of Newfoundland. He came to Twillingate mm. and he worked with me every morning that he was there to help me get over that thing. Like I wanted to let the audience know that I knew it was no good and I knew I was no good and that we were in on it together. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, okay, I'm in on this too. I know this is no, this is and I'm shit. 
So, you know, but as you know, audiences aren't really that interested in that kind of thing. But anyway, so Andy really helped me, helped me get over that. And then for a long time, you know, I really was, um, I really had a hard time for a long time. I got that kind of stage thing. And then a professor friend of mine said to me, he had always been trying to prove because he'd gone to Cambridge and stuff like that, what a brilliant guy he was. And he always wanted to. uh, And one day in class, he kind of got it that they were together, him and the class, that they were doing this together and that it wasn't his job to bedazzle them. And and Mm -hmm. so somehow or other that, I, I heard that in a way. And I started to think about me and the audience doing it together as, you know, and, uh, and so bit by bit, by bit, by bit, I worked through it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so you got that sense of, I got this, I guess a sense of inclusion with everybody uh, with the audience too, being one yeah. unit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so often people, you know, people who are on stage, don't have a clue. I, I mean, you're sitting here saying it was bad. It was really terrible. Uh, you know, I don't know if I would completely trust. I don't trust any artist's assessment of their own work. They're terrible. They're the hardest yeah. on themselves. And I guess that's why they, uh, you know, they strive to achieve more. Um, the, um, the people, I had a friend once who would always do auditions and he would always say, I, it was great. I was great. Mm-hmm. And he'd never get the job. <laughs> See? Never, ever, ever. Yeah. Right? It was like, you think... Wow, he's yeah. got that thing because they say that successful people. I know my my husband's daughter is brilliant, and she got a, a full ride at Cambridge to do her PhD in like medical physics or something. And she went th- flew through all the things. And every time there was an exam, Leela would go. You know, she would just have a complete mental collapse and would mm-hmm. be sure that she was going to get zero. Mm-hmm. And she would always get, you know, 140 if that was possible. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Just brilliant, but always, always very, like you're saying, I guess, always, always very, very concerned, anxiety ridden about mm-hmm. her ability to, you know, continue to produce 140. Mm-hmm. So what I'm curious about, so but you said it was, you've been 25 years, 30 years? Uh, 29, so 29. 29 years. Yeah. So obviously you you drank to cope i mean i mean uh, cope with you know anxiety and depression or whatever it was and you don't really have to put a name on it what i'm curious about is when you got to that point where you knew you had to stop drinking or or when somebody said or you know did somebody did somebody you know confront you how did that work and what did you start doing to uh take the place of drinking what was the replacement um you know how do you cope with the alcoholism now on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. Took the place of it right away. I became totally a workaholic. And the interesting thing is that I, my, my isms were just as bad as a workaholic as they were as an alcoholic. I felt, Mm. you know, nobody was doing as much work as me. I was angry. I was resentful. You know what I mean? I had all those things and that's what I went into first a complete full out workaholism, right? I was going to get it done, man, you know, like I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, so it took a long time to get over that too. And I didn't really get over it as usual. I find in my life, it isn't that I do anything. It's that the world gets in my way, stops me dead, slaps me down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard to be a workaholic when you don't have a job. 
You know what I mean? Even though I try, I try, you know, (laughs) but um, uh, so there are lessons that you learn. It's like Mark Twain said, a man who swings a cat by the tail uh, Mm -hmm. is learning a lesson that he can learn in no other way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, uh, that's sometimes just the way that lessons are learned, even though we'd love to think that, you know, I came to my senses and I, you know, but boy, no, you hit that wall and then there's, you know, then you have to, you have to learn a lot. And so um, the, um, I dealt with it that way. When I quit, I didn't want to quit. Mm-hmm. I'd been trying to make my partner quit for about three years in the hopes mm-hmm. that he would look after me and our son. And then one day I had, you know, like some people might call it a spiritual awakening uh, on Halloween in 1992, mm-hmm. sitting on the stairs, having a huge screaming fight with my you know, son in my arms. Um, I realized that I was going to have to get sober. Yeah. Right. And, and what was that process like? Did you, cold turkey or was it a an up and down you affair know, so many things happened my back went out and so i couldn't move for oh, that like would six be months. hard yeah then i went in uh you know like uh that was really hard and so but the thing was we were working in halifax and not in st john so i couldn't hang out with my regular people mm-hmm. i couldn't move and i suppose i could have uh had i been further along i suppose i could have gotten taxis to drop me off liquor mm-hmm. uh but you know i did have a son and a, a partner at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose I could have gone, you know, cause people go that far, right. They just go that thing where they just stay in bed until yep. they die, you know? Yep. And, yep. Uh, but thankfully, great, gratefully, I wasn't there. And all the things that I thought were so bad and I had surgery and stuff like that, all the things that I thought were so, so bad mm-hmm. um, turned out to be really a, um, a gift in terms of helping me get mm-hmm. through that terrible time, right? Like mm-hmm. I had so much to worry about. Like I remember <laughs> I had uh, later on, I, I got macular degeneration and there was none, none of the shots were available then. Lucentis hadn't really, it was still in trial, but yeah. there was a guy in St. Louis who was doing this surgery, this experimental surgery. And he, in four, it had a 40% uh, success rate. Yeah. And nobody in Canada was doing it. There was a guy in Halifax who was doing it with a no percentage rate. So all <laughs> the ophthalmologists said, if that was my eye, I'd take it down to Matthew Thomas in St. Louis yeah. and go down there and do it. So I, you know, and it's swift and severe. I was losing my, you know, like when Matthew Thomas, Dr. Matthew Thomas called me, I said, well, I've got to go home first because I was in Halifax and make some, he said, no, you've got to be here by Saturday. If you know, you're losing your sight so mm-hmm. rapidly. And I could see that I was, Mm-hmm. I could see that I was. Yeah. Anyway, I had a boyfriend at the time and he broke up with me. As I was, oh. I got back to this generation. I'm having surgery. <laughs> and he broke up with me. And I went, I could not believe it. And I remember saying to him, I cannot believe you're breaking up with me. I'm going blind. And he went, well, it's always going to be something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. But I cried so much about that, that I it distracted me from, um, you know, from the anxiety around, you know, perhaps losing my vision forever and going Mm -hmm. to St. Louis and having Mm -hmm. actual surgery in my eye. Mm -hmm. I was so devastated that it actually turned out to be a great thing because I I could only be half as anxious about the thing. And I think that that's the same with, um, uh, with that time of, uh, 
of, you know, having surgery, going into the operation, not being able to move, doing all mm. those things, it kind of lowered the temperature on the, oh my God, I'm not having a drink. But anytime that anything, you know, the least bit upsetting would happen, I would think, oh, I, sh I, should, I know what I should do. Mm -hmm. I should have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, I think there, I think a lot of people, and I certainly, it took me, because you're obviously still, you know, you alluded to earlier, you're still learning, like you're still learning how to cope. Like we're always learning. I think one of the mistakes people often make when they're trying to, you know, consider their condition, whether it's anxiety and depression or addiction, is that there's this golden land that you suddenly reach and you're all better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I found it right. very freeing when I realized that that doesn't exist. Um, yes. It, you know, because it's a goal. It's a goal that we chase that's unachievable and frustrating and demoralizing. So it seems like you've kind of reached that, too. I, I think so. Sometimes, of course, I slip into the I should be a lot further ahead than this. Am I still struggling with this? I, you know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but mostly I realize. And what I really like about being in recovery is there's so many things to learn all the time. Like mm -hmm. sometimes, of course, I get a bit down in the dumps about it and I think I must have been really, really bad. Mm -hmm. Because look, I'm still, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. but often yeah. I just feel kind of excited about, uh, you know, because it is, uh, you know, like I used to, when, when I was a, more of a practicing alcoholic, um, I would go to sleep at night and I would think, who loves me? Who loves me? I'd try to soothe myself with who right. loves me. And after a while in recovery, maybe 10 years or so, I began to think in a much more positive, you know, like a, 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 a powerful way, who do I love? Became more the question, like, who do I love? Right. right. Yeah. And I thought, yes, I... I am not, you know, the victim of everything sitting over here, waiting for someone to love me, waiting for somebody. To... I am the person in charge of me, you know, yeah, yeah. I am the boss of me. Right. Yeah. But I never wanted to be that. I wanted to be the boss of everybody else. Right. And mm -hmm. then have somebody, you know, swoop in and save me. Right. Yeah, for sure. And they, those people, I mean, there's people who definitely help me, but I found that I've gotten a lot more, a lot further um, by being, by being kind to people and, and, you know, sort of opening up. And I find that a lot of people really open up when you do the same. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I mean, I'm in the, you know, the, in a, in a, in a couple of different programs now. And, uh, and so that is, uh, you know, the whole basis really is uh, of it is that it's one person with a problem opening up, to another person who has a problem and sharing their experience, strength, and hope mm -hmm. with each other, not advising or, but just telling their story of what happened to them. And, oh yeah, I remember that, you know, yeah. month three, you know, yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff. It's enormously healing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this, this, uh, the sense that you're not alone is enormously <laughs> healing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we're you and I are definitely proof of that. I mean, I'm about as far west as you can be in one country, and you're about as far east as somebody can be while while in the same country. Yeah. Um, so, Mary, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. It's it's been awesome, and uh, I look forward to talking to you sometime in the future. Yeah, yep. it's been great. Okay. And uh, you know, best of luck going forward and all that. You too. You too. Take okay, care, Mary. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to our anxiety stories. If you'd like to support this podcast or Anxiety Canada, go to anxietycanada.com.